The following content is derived from the preaching ministry of Ashland Avenue Baptist Church in Oldham County, Kentucky, and is reproduced here for the benefit of its members. We exist to treasure and spread a passion for the supremacy of Christ in all things for the joy of all peoples, and we pray that God's grace among us would spread beyond us to the benefit of anyone who happens to listen. For more information about our church, go to ashlandoc.org. Thanks for listening. It's my joy to welcome you here to Ashland. I'm excited to be preaching for you today. Uh, Today we will be going through Psalm 63, so if you could open your Bibles to Psalm 63. And I just wanted to give you an update. We had a uh, a yard sale to fund uh, an adoption that's happening here at our church, and we uh, were able to collect over $3,200 to go towards that. So praise God for that. And it's no wonder the items there were amazing. You know, there's, 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 book, there's like great furniture. There's all kinds of cool stuff. I already did my pastor appreciation uh, month gift shopping while I was there. I found this wonderful children's book called Casey the Utterly Impossible Horse. So, um, you know, I was thinking about putting some nice notes in there for Pastor Casey and giving it to him in, on Pastor Appreciation Month. If you'd like to sign it, you can come see me after the service. Uh, we'll leave it on his desk for when he returns from vacation. Uh, but please uh, rise for a reading of God's holy and precious word from Psalm uh, 63. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. It's in a dry and weary land where there's no water. So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I'll lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you've been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be, she shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God, and all who swear by him shall exult. For the mouths of liars will be stopped. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you asking for nothing less than an encounter with you. We want to experience your love. We want to experience your grace. We're not content to merely just learn about it, like we're studying math. But Lord, we want to feel a sense of your love this morning, so I pray that you would visit us, that you would make your presence known to us, Lord, that you would work in our lives and in our hearts in these moments as we hear your word preached. Lord, I pray that none of us would be the same after this message. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. You know, the senses are a funny thing. Uh, They have a way of burning into your mind. Uh, You know, maybe you don't remember exactly what your, your parents' house looked like as you were growing up, but if you were to smell your mom's fresh-baked apple pie or your favorite dish that she made when you were a child, it would take you right back to that place. 
Maybe, maybe it's a smell. Maybe there's a sound you would hear, a song that takes you back to your childhood or a song that takes you back uh, to maybe when you were, you were first uh, meeting your spouse, your current spouse or whatever. Uh, you know, the senses have a way of ingraining in our memories. In a similar way, when our senses aren't gratified, it has a way of burning into our memory. For example, I will never, ever forget the time I was the most thirsty. Now think about that for just a second. Think, think back and say, man, when was I the most thirsty in my entire life? When was the time where I needed water more than I needed anything? If you were to hand me, if you were to offer me a million dollars and a bottle of water, I'd take the bottle of water. Rem look back to that time. And the time for me was when I was in Cordova, Peru on a mission trip. And we were asked by some of the locals, we kind of had a deal going, hey, these missionaries, they'll go and do a day's labor as long as you listen to their gospel presentation. So a lot of people, a lot of locals were willing to take us up on that. So one guy walked us six miles up into the mountains, so six miles up, all right, we're about, uh, you know, 10, 15,000 feet above sea level, the, the air is thin, but we get up there and he asks us to begin chopping wood. Right, so we begin, uh, we have these massive logs this big around, and he says, he gives us a chisel and, a, and an axe that's basically just a stone tied to a stick. And so we begin hacking away at this stump. Now, Eric was our long-term missionary. He had been there for two years at the time, and, and me and Jake were on a short-term trip. But me and Jake were really excited about this, mostly because we were a couple of meatheads. All right, so we were a bunch. Of, we were a couple of blockheaded gym rats, uh, and so we were excited. We're like, "Oh yeah, man, we're gonna go up there. We're gonna chop this wood. The cordovans are gonna be blown away with these two. Like, and, and also this is Peru. Like, we're for the first time in my life, I'm like a foot taller than everybody, and I'm feeling good about myself. And so we begin chopping, uh, chopping down at this log. Well, about thirty minutes go by. And me and Jake, the two machismo muscle heads, are on the ground. We've already drank all the water that we brought with us, and we're panting. <laughs> and Eric, this bean pole of a man, all right, like a strong gust of wind would have taken him right off the mountain. And Eric is still going strong. You see, his body had acclimated to the, to the air, the oxygen levels, but we were not. So we finished the day, and, and, and by the way, all of our pride in ourselves was eliminated when one of these, these tiny cordovans came up and did more work than the three of us did in two hours. He did, it, he did more work in five minutes. He finished the entire job right in front of us. So that was a piece of humble pie. But, we, but keep in mind, you're on the mountain, it's not like the Cordovans had like a little helicopter to come pick us up. We still had a six-mile hike down the mountain. And I would have given anything, anything, anything for just a sip of water because we were all out. And when we got back to the village after a six-mile hike, I was having hallucinations. I was seeing things out there. But we got back, and I bought six bottles of water and drank them all in one shot. I just drank all of them. But it, that is forever burned into my mind. You st the senses have a way of doing that. And that's what's happening to David, the author of this psalm. That's, where, that's what's happening to him in this psalm. That's the context. So look with me at verse 1. It says, Oh God, you are my God. I earnestly seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh 
faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there's no water. Now to understand why he's writing these words, we need to understand at what point in the life of David is this psalm being written? So in 1 Samuel chapter 15, we have, we have these words. It says, a messenger came to David saying, the hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. That's David's own son. The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his servants and who were with him at Jerusalem, arise, let us flee or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quick, quickly, lest he overtake us quickly and bring ruin down on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. This is a tale as old as time. We have the impatient prince in Absalom, the one who thinks, man, I could do this so much better than dear old dad. So there's an uprising. Absalom has won the favor of the people Israel, and they have driven King David out of Jerusalem, his own capital. So we see David taking flight into the wilderness, the desert of Judah, apart from all of his palaces, apart from the temple, apart from his servants and everything, everybody's serving him, saying, oh, 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 great king, what can we do to serve you? Now he's in the desert. He's out. He's been, he's been driven out of his own kingdom. And so for David, when he says, oh, I'm thirsting for you as in a, a land where there's, there's no water, yeah, David's probably thirsty. They're in the middle of the desert. But it's bound up with this spiritual thirst. David feels like he's been destroyed. He has no identity as king anymore. And he's thirsty for God. He's thirsty for God. He's thirsty for, he's not just physically thirsty, but he's spiritually thirsty. And this is, a, this, this spiritual thirst is something that a lot of authors have written about. Not even just Christian ones, uh, but C.S. Lewis write, writes this. He says, thou hast made us for thyself and our hearts are restless until they find rest in thee. This is the kind of thirst that David's writing about, that thirst for something more. And you've experienced that. Even if you, even if you, don't, think, even if you don't believe uh, in the Bible, you don't believe in the gospel, you've experienced this thirst. You want more for your life. Maybe it's you want a, a better career. Maybe you want a family. Maybe you want to achieve something. Maybe you have a dream, right, that you're trying to achieve, but, you, but no one, you, you didn't come up with this thirst. It was in here, right? That thirst is implanted in you for more. But for David... His thirst is bound up in God. Now, here's the interesting part. Right? We all acknowledge that we want things out of life. We're thirsty for more in this life. And so you think, oh yeah, well, if you, you think the message is, oh, well, if you just believe the gospel, then your thirst will be taken away. You're going to be fully satisfied. And all the Christians in here should be chuckling. All right, because that, I know that's not the case for me. I wake up every day with a thirst. I wake up every day wanting something, wanting something else. Right? I have these desires that I haven't, I want to achieve more, I want to get more, I want something more out of life. And so this thirst isn't something that just magically disappears when you become a Christian. The difference is, is that a Christian knows where to find the real water. That's the difference. And so let's look, let's look at David here and see what does he do in the desert to have an encounter with God that's going to satisfy him, that's going to slake this thirst that he has. He gives, us a, he gives us two ways. The first way here is to behold. 
in verses one through six is to behold. So look with me at verses two through four. It says, so I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. That verse three, that's one of the great verses in the Bible. That's one of the ones that just stands out and jumps at you because God's steadfast love is better than life. What does that mean? Does that mean just, oh, you know, God's love is better than living? What it means when it says life, it's saying that all of your desires, all the things that you want right now, maybe you want a child. Maybe you want a different job, a job that fulfills you. You know, or maybe you just even, maybe it's something as simple as, I just want a reasonably priced home in the real estate market. All right, fat chance. But maybe, maybe it's something as simple as that. The scripture is telling us that God's steadfast love, having a sense of that love, is better than anything that you want currently. Doesn't that make you repent? Doesn't that make you repent of the time you spend wanting something different out of life? Right, I think this is why envy is, so, is, 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 is considered such a sin in the Bible. Because we, as Christians, if we want what someone else has, we're saying, hey, I don't have everything I need. When in, when in God's love, we have something that's better than anything the world has to offer. It's better than anything you want. Even more than that, when the Bible says, your steadfast love is better than life, God's steadfast love and having a sense of that is better than all the pleasures of the world has to offer. So put your specific dreams aside and think about who should be the happiest person in the world. Maybe you'd think of a celebrity. You'd think of uh, some political leader. Uh, You'd think of someone who should be the happiest person. They want for nothing. They care for nothing. All the pleasures of the world combined do not hold a candle for us when we have a sense of God's love. That's what we have. That's the wealth that we've been given in God's love. And so maybe you're with me here. Because as I was studying for this, I'm reading that. I'm like, how do I get a sense of this? How can I taste it? Because I believe that it's there, right? I know that God has promised. And I see all these verses where it says God's love is better than life. God's love is so great. God's love is all satisfying. How do I get to it? Right? It's like there's a cookie jar on top of the fridge and I don't have a stool. You know, like my kids. How do I get to the cookies? How do I get to God's love? How do I get a sense of that? Well, this is how David does it. Look at verse 2. He says, I've looked upon you in the sanctuary. Well, here, you're going to pause right here. Some of you who are familiar with your Old Testament, you're going to say, whoa, 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 whoa. Wait, David never got to look directly at God. Right? He hasn't looked at God. There's no story where, you know, David's in, in the temple and he didn't look at God. Right? You never see that. In fact, there's, there's a moment where Moses tries to look at God and he has to shield his eyes. Right? Look, there's, there's this teaching in the Old Testament that if we were to look straight at God, we would be undone. We would be destroyed by his magnificence. So how can it be that David has seen God? Well, he didn't have, my, my read on this is that he didn't have this, he didn't have a theophany where he, he literally saw God, but that he had an experience of God in temple worship that was so intense that it is just as good as sight. 
He had an experience of this steadfast love of God in temple worship that was so intense, right, that he, that he could basically say, I've seen God. God's presence was made so real to him in that moment that it, he might as well have just seen God himself. This is, what, this is the kind of seeing that you and I are called to do. This is a faith sight, not a literal seeing of God with our eyes, but apprehending the love of God by faith. But, in the, but the setting is in temple worship, Sunday morning service. He looks back in the middle of the desert. There's nothing for him. He's thirsty. He's lost his identity. Where does his mind go to? Not to self-pity, right? He doesn't go to this powerful, quiet time. He had it by himself in the morning. He looks back on temple worship and remembers an intense experience he had with God. Now, I wonder how many of us in here have walked into this room, came here on Sunday morning expecting to have an encounter with God, expecting to experience him, to feel a taste of his love. You see, this is, this is what fuels David in the desert. This expectation is what's going to get him through. He knows and he remembers this experience he had. And he, he, he thinks, I know it's going to come again. See, here's the problem. And it's, it says it here in James 4 too, you have, you do not have because you do not ask. So when was the last time in a worship service you can remember a fresh encounter with God, an experience with him where his love was just so made known to you, you almost had to say, Lord, stop, turn, turn off the nozzle, I'm drowning in your love. When was the last time you experienced that? Think about it. But this is the expectation that we are to have when we come in to church on Sunday mornings. We're expecting that God will be generous with himself. We're expecting that God will make his love apparent to us. Now, maybe you're not sure where you fall on that spectrum. Well, I've got a, here's a few diagnosis questions. How likely are you to invite someone here to Sunday morning service? You know, Josh and I, almost every week, we, have, we always text each other about some movie we've seen that, that week, right? And, one, and when one is really good, we're sending, like, clips of it. We're sending, we're like, you have to see this movie. And then the next day, we're like, hey, did you watch it yet? Did you watch the movie yet? And we're both dads now, so, you know, it used to be, like, cool movies. Now it's like, dude, have you seen Frozen 3 yet? Oh, so good, you know? But when it's really good, we're, we're like, hey, have you seen this yet? We're, it's important to us that this other person have the same experience we have. You see, if we truly expected to have an encounter with God in Sunday mornings, we'd be constantly inviting people to come. We would be constantly inviting them to come because you know that God is going to work. You want them to have the same experience in worship that you did. Second one, how easy is it for you to miss a Sunday? See, here's the thing. If church is just another box to check off, it's another thing to perform throughout the week, all it takes is, is just the most mild inconvenience to get you to not come. Right? Or, do you, or maybe, if you're honest with yourself, maybe sometimes you look for a reason to miss. Oh, I've, I've got a little bit of a stomach ache. I'm not going to come. You know, I'm a little tired today. I'm not going to come. 
if we were truly expectant of what God would do in this service on Sunday mornings, oh, it would, be, it would take a lot more to make us miss church. The problem may be that you're not expecting to encounter God here. But the, the experience that David's, David has had in worship, before Christ has even been revealed, we've been promised even more than this in our worship. We were promised far more than that. So we must expect that God is going to work. This is what John Piper says on it. Worship services are about going hard after God. When we say that what we do on Sunday mornings is to go hard after God, we mean that we are going hard after satisfaction in God. We're going hard after God as our prize. We're going hard after God as our treasure, our soul food, our heart delight, our spirit's pleasure or to put Christ in his rightful place. It means that we're going hard after all that God is for us in Jesus Christ, crucified and risen. Did you walk in today saying, man, I'm going to pursue God today. I'm going to run after him in this service until he gives me a sense of his love. And are you expecting that God will make that love known to your heart in a way that will satisfy you? But, but David has another encounter in verses 5 and 6. Look with me at verses 5 and 6. It says, My soul will be satisfied with, with fat and rich food. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips. There's this, as you can see, this psalm is overflowing with language of the senses. Right? We, have, we have water, we have food, we have fat, fatty, delicious food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on the watches of the night. Again, in the desert, food, not plentiful. All right, he can't stop at, you know, the Outback Steakhouse in the, in the desert of Judah. All right, there's not much food to go around. They're probably living off uh, dry rations, trying to sur- just to survive out there. But David says, my soul will be satisfied with fat and rich food in the desert. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. Again, how is David going to go about getting this? All right, number one, he's remembering his experience in the worship service. But here he says, when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, I'm going to feel full. It's going to be like a steak dinner when I'm thinking about the truths of God, the beauty of God, the love of God in bed. And as I was reading this, I'm just thinking, man, I feel like, Whenever we talk about like reading the Bible, having a devotional time, we talk about waking up in the morning, don't we? Oh yeah, I got to have my morning quiet time. But we never talk about uh, a devotional, having a devotional plan uh, for the night, right? But we see in the Psalms, David especially is constantly talking about the night watches. The night watches is when uh, in the middle of the night, the guards to the city would trade out. This is the, this is late. This is uh, midnight, 1 a.m., 2 a.m., all right? He's talking about always being there in the middle of the night and worshiping and, and devoting himself to God in the middle of the night. Now, here's the thing. Is there something special about the nighttime that makes it a time for worship? Maybe, maybe not. But for some of us, the nighttime is a time of particular temptation, isn't it? Right? The day's work is over. All right, everything, you've had all the conversations you're going to have that day, you've done all the work, and there's a couple, there's lots of temptations that can come on you at night, but for me, my personal experiences, at nighttime, this is when I begin to go over my regrets for the day. 
right? This is what I'm meditating on. I'm saying, man, this is what I should have done today. I didn't make that call. I didn't pray for that person. I, I, I said this unwise thing to someone that they probably took offense to it. I made this mistake at work. That's what I'm going over in my head. What I should have said, what I should have done that day, and I'm meditating on it. I'm thinking about it. I'm thinking how much better would my day have gone if I had just done those things. You see, at night, when the work is done, for a lot of us, this is when Satan begins to whisper his lies about you. Man, today was a failure. The kids were crazy. Uh, I, I messed up at work. My boss is upset with me. And this is where I begin to doubt. This is where I begin to, to, to go over these things in my mind. And I want to argue for you that David is one of us. If, if you're like that, if the nighttime is a time of particular temptation, whatever it is, I'm going to argue that David is, is one of us. In, in 2 Samuel chapter 11, we see this episode. It says, one evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. See, this is from earlier in David's life, when he was up in the night watches, not worshiping God, not reflecting and meditating on the love of God, but hunting for satisfaction from other things. Right? It is in the nighttime where David is weak. And I think I would argue that at this point, David's learned that, hey, if I am not intentionally focusing on God at the end of the day, I'm going to sin. Right? Temptation is going to come to me and, I'm, and I will give in to it. You see, David's exemplifying for us what so many of us fail at. He has become well acquainted with how Satan works in his life when the lies of Satan come to him. He's become well acquainted with it, and he's organized himself around worshiping God in those times. So is there anything special, especially special, about the nighttime? For some of us, yes, this is a time of temptation. But I think what we see here is an example of us knowing where Satan is going to try and attack us and being ready. You know, in, uh, you know I've been a character coach for the, me and Kyle Sivers have been character coaches uh, for the Oldham County football team for several years now. And one of the things that always strikes me is that the week before a game, when they practice, they spend half their time practicing, drilling plays, right? They spend their time getting re themselves ready for the game. They spend the other half of the time, hours and hours and hours and hours, in the game film room, watching games that the opponent has done finding tendencies that they're doing. On third and 10, on third and long, what, are, what kind of decision are they going to make? What, what type of plays do they usually kind of run on second down? They're analyzing film to understand what the enemy is. And some of you might think that's silly. I did. I'm like, if, why don't you just use this, all this extra time practicing, right? Getting better at your plays, getting ready, getting ready, yourself ready to work your game plan. Well, these coaches have figured out something that we are too slow often to recognize is that it doesn't matter how much training you do, if you're not prepared for what your enemy's going to do, you're going to lose. You're going to lose. So what we see here is, what I want to challenge you with is how much game film are you watching? Do you keenly, are you keenly aware of when you're particularly tempted in life? 
It doesn't have to be a time of day. Maybe it's, maybe for me, it's after I'm, I fail at something. It's after I don't do well on a project I'm assigned. It's after I drop the ball on something. This is when I begin to self-doubt. This is when I begin uh, to, to listen to Satan's lies. I get discouraged. I get depressed. Or maybe it's, maybe it's a day when the kids in your life have been particularly difficult. You're tempted to say, this day's already a bust. This day is already a failure. I can't do this. All right, this day's already failed. I just want to go to tomorrow. Maybe it's at work. You, maybe you don't like your job. <laughs> you know, maybe you, just, you, you don't like it there, and, you, and you're prone to be discontent there. Do you have a plan for that, for when those feelings arise? Or are you just letting them reign over you? So he, there's a few things you can do. Um, it's not important which tool you pick, but it's important that you have a game plan. So for me, uh, when I fail... This is when, when I'm most prone uh, to begin uh, despairing. I have a book here called Note to Self by Joe Thorne. Um, this is the tool that I use. Uh, it's just filled with prayers for different circumstances, like uh, when you feel like you can't make it all the way, uh, when you need to repent of sin, uh, when you need to rebound from sinning, uh, when you fall into pride. He's got prayers for each of those things written in here. So I'll just flip open to the page I need, or for the ones that I'm referencing a lot, I've just got pictures on my phone, and, this, and I'll just pray that prayer. And God has borne so much fruit in my own life. Uh, now, I'm not just telling you to go out and buy this book, but I am encouraging you to get a game plan together. So find a brother or sister you have in Christ, uh, whether it be your spouse or just someone from in the church Get together and come up with a game plan together for when you know Satan is going to attack you, whether it be in the nighttime, whether it be when you fail or you're at work. Come up with a game plan and implement it in just very small ways. It doesn't have to be this big thing, uh, but you do need a plan to fight off uh, Satan. The scripture teaches us clearly that he is cunning and he is always roaming about the earth looking for, for, for people to devour. So, so we have our first instruction, it's to behold God. That's what we see him do first. But the next step is in verses 7 through 11, we'll see how uh, we are to be held by God. Read with me in verses 7 and 8. It says, For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me. Now, we're there's a transitioning happening here from the psalm. David goes from talking about the pleasures of God, of knowing God, of experiencing his love, and he transitions to the foundation of that love. Why is David so certain that God is going to deliver on this love? And he says this. He says, for you have been my help. He's basically saying, God, you have been faithful to me up to this point, and you will not let me die now. You will not fail me now. And it's funny, in our BFGs, we often go through prayer request after prayer request, week after week after week. And what we find in our small groups is we find that just God is consistently answering prayers. Man, and, and we consistently doubt that God is going to come through for us. It's helpful for us to look back and say, man, God has never let me down. I'm still here. And he has been faithful to me thus far. He will not let me go. But this next line, it's so good. He says, my soul clings to you in verse 8. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. You know, one of the things you have to grapple with when you have small children 
and all of you have, you know, you have small children in your life. You don't have to be a parent. But when you guys are walking together, right, you've got, you, you realize after a while that you have got, uh, you know, to hold their hand. It's not for support. You know, Miles can walk now, but he usually needs to like hold my hand to do that. Well, Fuller still needs to hold my hands, my, my, my four-year-old, but for different reasons, right? Because he's prone to like jet off in another direction at any point. We're walking down the sidewalk. He's prone to just kind of jet over there. So I, the dilemma beca- begins like, man, how do I hold on to this kid? And so maybe you're like, oh man, you know, I want for my kids, I want, like, I want them to have a college education, I want them to succeed. You know, very quickly when you actually become a parent, you're like, I just want this kid to survive. I just want them to make it to adulthood, you know. Um, but holding their hand is a particular difficulty. And you know kids, like, if you ever held a kid's hand, they're always so, like, slimy. You know, they've got this soap thing on their hand, you don't know what it is. It's like, I, you just wash your hands and... They're all, it's like you put your hands in a vat of Vaseline and, and they just like slip right out. So, you, so as parents, you've got to be really thoughtful about how you hold your kid's hand. Like there's a couple of ways you can try and do it, right? This is the fool's way of doing it. It's like, oh, I'm just going to, I'm going to put my finger out. I'm going to let them hold my hand. All right, you're asking for trouble here. All right, they can let go of you at any time they want and bolt off in another direction. There's another way you can try to do it. You can try to, to put your hand around theirs like this, you know, try to grab their hand and hold it. But again, that, those sticky hands, they just go, they just can slide right out of there and bolt off. So as, as the father of four, go, about to be five, very small children, uh, I have developed what I call the Abdelgany Claw Method, TM. So what the Abdelgany Claw Method is, uh, and we will be having a class about this later. I'll be teaching it after the service, is you put your finger out like this. You splay out your fingers, and you let the child grab your, your, your pointer finger. Okay, you see they've grabbed it. Now you use your remaining four fingers to clasp around them. So in their mind, oh, I'm just holding daddy's hand. I can leave whenever I want. But the, but the fingers have clasped around them, securing their grip. That's a funny illustration, but that's exactly the way that God holds us, Christians. Is that, yes, yes, it says, it says my soul clings to you. We're going to do everything we can to cling to God, to, to chase after him, to experience his love. We're going to be in our word. We're going to be in the Bible. We're going to be going to church on Sundays, expectant that he's going to, going to, to show himself to us. But while we're doing everything we can to get a hold of God and a sense of his love, we must remember that God has already got a hold of you. He's already got a hold of you. He's, all the efforts you do to clasp onto him are secured by his own fatherly love. And that's a comfort for us, especially if you feel, man, God's love just doesn't feel evident to me right now. Right from moment to moment, my grip on him just feels so weak and limp, and like I'm going to slip away at any moment. God's grip is on you, and he is not like us at all. He never tires. He never gets distracted. He ne- his grip never weakens in the slightest. From the first moment that you fell in love with Jesus, that you got a new heart, that you felt that, you felt that God was the most important thing in your life and that this is going to change everything. From that first moment, his grip has never weakened one bit on you, Christian. 
That's the love that God has for you. And it never, ever fails. And from this news, we see what, what comes from David in verses 9 through 11 is this burst of confidence. It says, but, but those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. And all who swear by him will exult for the mouths of the liars will be stopped. There's so much confidence coming from David now after he's processed uh, this episode in his life, after remembering the love that God has for him, after looking to him and, and hiding in the shadow of God's wings and looking to him for protection, he's confident. He says, those who seek to destroy my life, they're going to go into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. There'll be a portion for jackals. He's so confident that his enemies will be destroyed. He's so confident that God is going to deliver on the pro every promise that he's given. He's so confident in it. And look at verse 11. He says, the, the most confident statement of the whole psalm, but the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him will exult and the mouths of liars will be stopped. He says, it's a sure thing. The king, King David will rejoice in God. It's a certainty for David at this point. It's a certainty that all who swear by this king are going to exalt. You know, as I read this psalm, I can't help but be reminded of the life of Jesus in the Gospels. You know, we see here a king stuck in a desert, right, being driven out into the desert. And we see him being, uh, being victimized by, by someone who he raised himself. He's in, he's in the deepest, darkest place you could imagine. But we also see Jesus going through deserts all the time. His ministry begins, right? He begins with his baptism, and then he's immediately thrust out into the wilderness, into the desert, to face the temptations of Satan. He's thrust out there. And it's not just a one-off. Jesus spends so many times in his life suffering in a desert-like place that, we, that, that in Isaiah, he's, he's called man of sorrows. His, his life is so difficult that we give him the title, the man of sorrows. You know, he goes, he goes from, the, from the, the wilderness. We see him at the grave of his friend Lazarus weeping. We see him in Gethsemane begging God not to go through with this. Right? Do not crucify me. I don't want to do this, please. But if it be in your will, I'll do it. Right? He's so distressed. He's so physically distraught in that moment. And then to the ultimate desert, his crucifixion, where he's solitary. He's alone on a cross being crucified for the sins of others, experiencing the very wrath of his God, of his Father. Right? Not being completely separated from God, but his his apprehension of God's love was taken away. He didn't feel it in that moment. He suffered for us. But in all of these sufferings, in all of these pains that Jesus went through, there is not one moment that he failed to rejoice in his Father and do his Father's will. He said that that's my food, is to do the will of my Father. And he never failed once to rejoice in God's love for him. That's the miracle of the cross, is that even though he was up there suffering, he was doing it for the joy set before him. And he was doing it 
for us so that we could sing this psalm along with him and sing together with Jesus, no matter what desert you're in, no matter what circumstance you're in, we can sing these words, the king shall rejoice in God and all who swear by him will exalt, will celebrate. That's our destiny in Christ. Let's pray together.